Well, good morning and greetings from my house to your house. Uh, I must admit this does feel ever so slightly New Testament-ish, uh, as if you remember they kept meeting in their households. And also I do feel a bit like the Apostle Paul right now when he spoke of his longing to be with the church in Rome. If you recall, uh, as he couldn't be with them in person, which he admitted was way, way better, he had to resort to sending a letter instead. Uh, and in case you wonder whether I've got pretensions of grandeur, uh, I do need to say that is pretty much where the similarity between myself and Paul ends because, let's face it, his letter to the Romans will be remembered long after this short video fades from your memory, which will probably be lunchtime tomorrow if I'm lucky. But I can very much empathise with Paul's pain. I'd much rather be with you right now, uh, and I'm deeply, deeply sorry that you're going to have to put up with my face on your screen for the next 30 minutes or so. Now, the temptation for me today was to keep on speaking directly into the whole coronavirus situation that's kind of dominating our lives right now. In fact, uh, I had actually prepared a couple of very different messages to bring this morning. Uh, just to say, if you're interested in the one that didn't make the cut, uh, it has been available uh, as a series of short films on the Church Central website and app uh, that have gone out through this week. If you haven't seen them, uh, do check it out at your leisure. Basically, it's a call to make the most of the very real opportunities that we have in front of us at the moment. But what I want to do today is try and help each of us to lift our eyes from our immediate situation and glimpse something of the bigger picture of what God has been doing in the world down through history and I guess by implication what he's doing in the world at this present time. As we're going to see, it's incredibly good news and my hope is that it will provide a bit of respite for us, uh, a bit of much needed encouragement and perspective in these current times. So if you want to follow along we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 verses 12 to 25. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth then left there and moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah in the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali beside the sea beyond the Jordan River in Galilee where so many Gentiles live. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, who were throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he also called to them too, come. And they immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Jesus travelled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. 
news about him spread as far as Syria and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick and whatever their sickness or disease or if they were demon possessed or epileptic or paralyzed he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the Ten Towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and from east of the Jordan River. I'm aware that there are a whole bunch of people listening into this. Some of you will be familiar with this story. For lots of others, this is all very new. But I think for all of us, there is a bit of work that we need to do here. We, we need to use our imaginations and get into the lives of these characters if we're going to grasp what's really going on beneath the surface and feel the full weight of this story. So that's what we're going to do. I want you to try and imagine that you are one of these fishermen in the story we've just read. You're Jewish, you're living in your ancestral homeland, and you are acutely aware that your people are not living freely in their land because there are Roman soldiers everywhere you look. And these soldiers, they've been around for the best part of 50 years. They've militarized the place. There are checkpoints. Taxes keep going up. Your neighbors, left, right, and center, are going into debt. They're having to sell off their land. Life is really hard. But you hear these reports. There's this young prophet named Jesus from Nazareth, and he's been making quite the name for himself. He has this pretty explosive message, and everywhere he goes, huge crowds are rallying to him. And you hear that he's coming to your little synagogue in your small town. And so you go along to check it out because you are more than a little intrigued. And the synagogue is absolutely rammed. People are spilling out into the street, all clamoring to see and hear what is going on. And you uh, manage to push your way through the crowds until eventually you're close enough to just about make out what Jesus is teaching. And what do you hear him saying? Well, he pretty much had one main theme that was woven into all of his teaching and was displayed in all of his actions. There's a word or a phrase that appears over 50 times in the 28 chapters of Matthew, and it appears for the first time here in verse 17. I think if you wanted to summarize everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did, this is a pretty good place to start. Jesus says, repent. So pay attention because there's something really significant happening that's going to force you to reckon with something incredibly important that will leave you with a decision you have to make about how you're going to respond. And what's the thing that you're going to have to respond to? What's the thing you're going to have to reckon with? It's the kingdom of heaven. If you read the other Gospels, uh, they, they tend to speak of the kingdom of God, but it's the same thing. Heaven it is high above us. It's transcendent. If you like, heaven is God's space. So it's kind of an image for God himself. It's a way of saying that God is high and exalted above us all. So back to the story. You're this fisherman who hears Jesus saying that the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to, to walk around in Jewish Palestine 2,000 years ago saying that the kingdom of heaven is near? What does that mean for these fishermen? Well, to answer that question, I think we need to take a step back from the story of Jesus for a moment and see how the story of Jesus ties in with both the storyline of the ancient scriptures and the storyline of human history as a whole. And so let me take you on a quick whistle-stop tour of the whole of the Old Testament 
And then, rest assured, right at the end, I'm going to return again to this story in Matthew 4 and hopefully then be in a place to feel the full force of its challenge for us and our lives today. Now, not know if, sure if you know this, but uh, the very first time the whole idea of kingdom appears in the Bible, uh, of a king ruling and reigning, it's in the very first chapter. Uh, if you are familiar with the story, God is depicted as this royal artist who speaks into being a whole world of beauty and order out of chaos. And having created this world and populated it with animals, we get to the very pinnacle of creation. Verse 27, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Do you see that this is the language of kings and queens, that these image-bearing creatures who represent God in his creation reign along with God or on God's behalf. They're, if you like, installed as kings and queens over creation in order to unlock its full potential. That's how the story of the Bible begins. And things are incredibly good until the next page of the Bible where human beings rebel. They see their opportunity to rule as an opportunity for their own self-advancement. They don't trust God. They don't trust God's motives. They don't want to trust God's definition of good and evil. And they want to define what is good and evil for themselves. And so things go horribly wrong. Instead of ruling on behalf of God as his deputies, they usurp him. They seize control. And as the story goes on, they set up an alternate kingdom, that the kingdom of this world, it's sometimes called, resulting in this whole age of sin and death, as the Apostle Paul later puts it. It's the Bible's way of explaining why the world is as it is, why things are so messed up and broken, and why dreadful things keep on happening in the world is because human beings have rejected God's kingdom and have made their own instead. And so what's God's response? Well, as the story goes on, we see God forming a people. Out of all rebellious humanity in their kingdoms, he selects one people and say they will be his special people. He'll liberate them, he'll free them out of the kingdom of this world, and they will be his people, and he will be their king. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, we see this acted out in the whole story of the Exodus, where God's people, if you recall, are in captivity in Egypt. And if you remember, God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But Pharaoh refuses. He thinks he's the ultimate king. What he says goes. But God delivers his people by sending a bunch of plagues, parting the Red Sea so they can escape, before sending the waters then crashing back over the heads of the might of the whole Egyptian army and wiping them out in an instant. After which, God's people sing this song of worship to God. It's found uh, tucked away in Exodus 15. Here's how it goes. I will sing to the Lord... For he has triumphed gloriously. He's hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's given me victory. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. And then just 
scan down to the last line of the song, verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So who's the king? God's the king. Earthly kings, they come and go, but the Lord reigns forever and ever. And so putting all of this together, here's what the story of the kingdom is all about. It starts with the king. I mean, for a kingdom, you, you've got to have a king. So there's a king, and he's trying to form a people who will reign under his kingly rule. But instead of submitting to his rule, the people want to form their own kingdom, and it all goes horribly wrong. And so God calls a new people into being. And what does it look like when his kingdom or his reign shows up, Well, he defeats evil? He confronts everything that's wrong with humanity and their kingdoms. He shows it what it is and he is victorious over it and he rescues his people and then he invites those people to live under his rule. How are you all doing? Hope you're, you're managing to grasp the big picture. Let's keep going. If you remember, next thing that happens in the Exodus story, uh, after God's led them through the desert and into the promised land, is he takes them to the foot of a mountain where he gives them instruction on how to live well in community under his rule. Now, if you're familiar with the whole story, how does Israel do at living obediently under God's rule and reign? Well, they do a horrible job. They, they, they run the nation into the ground because they refused to submit to the reign of the very king who rescued them in the first place. It's a tragic story. But all the time, tucked away in the background, Israel's prophets kept alive this hope that one day God would take his world back, that he would become king again, that, that God would do something where he would install his kingdom, not just over Israel, but over all humanity. So, for example, the prophet Isaiah describes this anticipation in Isaiah 52. He, he paints this scene of a watchman on the city walls, that the city is in danger of being destroyed, and he's looking onto the horizon in the hope that help could be on the way. And eventually, in the distance, he sees a messenger running towards him. He says in verse 7, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. The watchmen shout and sing with joy, for before their very eyes they see the Lord returning to Jerusalem. Let the ruins of Jerusalem break into joyful song, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has has demonstrated his holy power before the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the victory of our God. It's like the prophets the whole time keep this hope that although humanity has rejected God, he will come back one day to reclaim his world and form a people once again who will live under his rule and he will bring salvation and rescue for all the peoples of the earth. So if you're Jewish and you go to the synagogue every week, these are the stories and images that are very much alive in your imagination. You don't need any of this explaining to you. You think about this stuff all the time. So if you're there in the crowd listening to Jesus and you hear him say, the kingdom of God has arrived and you now need to make a decision about what you're going to do about it. I tell you, you're going to wake up and take notice. You're going to be watching attentively to see what happens next. And what does happen next? What does Jesus do? Well, 
he decides to take himself off for a walk by a lake and he calls these four random fishermen to follow him and immediately they drop everything that they leave their livelihood their family that they walk away from their business and follow Jesus and what's Jesus doing well he announces that the kingdom is here what's the first thing he does he starts forming a new people around himself that's what he does and he asks them to submit to his reign the point is that to follow Jesus involves this radical reordering of all of their priorities their life goals their motivations their identity everything so summarize all of this the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is the story of God reclaiming the world through Jesus, forming a people who are going to live under the rule and reign of the king. But what does it look like in practice when Jesus takes over the world? Well, we're told in verse 23, it involved two things, words and deeds. Firstly, Jesus taught and proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. And secondly, he went around healing lots of people. Now, if you're wondering what exactly Jesus taught and proclaimed about the kingdom well the next three chapters in Matthew tell us in quite some detail uh, and that is what we're going to be studying together over the next four or five months and then in the following chapters in chapters eight and nine we get a whole raft of stories about Jesus doing some kind of sign or wonder or healing and spoiler alert through Jesus words and deeds what we're going to be seeing is that the people who were right at the bottom of society the sick, the hurting, the broken, the poor, those are the ones who flock to Jesus and they find life. That's what it's like when Jesus takes over the world. People find themselves healed and transformed at the deepest level and it's very often those who are most aware of their brokenness and need. That's what happens when the kingdom of heaven comes near. And what Matthew's telling us here it's so much more than a little story that happened in Palestine 2,000 years ago. He's effectively telling us the story of our world. That This is the story of how God is getting humanity back on track again. You know, we spend so much of our time and energy, don't we, building our own little kingdoms. And Jesus comes to get at the very root of the issues that make things as messed up and broken as they currently are. And he comes to call us to be part of a people who will humbly follow him and begin to live our lives under his good rule and reign. What does it look like to live under the reign of King Jesus? Well, that's what we're going to be unpacking Sunday by Sunday over the next four or five months. And just to warn you, it's going to be both incredibly inspiring and incredibly uncomfortable in equal measure. Because he's going to get at the root issues of what's wrong with us as human beings and he's not going to let any single one of us off the hook. But through it all, his invitation will keep coming. Follow me. And if you hear these words of Jesus and reject them, as Rich shared with us last week, it's like you're building your life on sand and there'll come a day when it's all going to come crashing down around you. But if you listen to these words of Jesus and obey what he says, it's as though you're building your life on rock. And whatever storms or circumstances batter you, you are going to be secure. You know, at a time like the one we're enduring right now, we're beginning to find out, aren't we, just how secure what we're building on really is. Where little kingdoms are crashing down all around us, 
I tell you, the invitation to follow Jesus seems more and more compelling. Because you see, the same Jesus who walks around challenging us to change and boldly summoning us to follow him is also the one who's full of compassion, constantly looking for the outsiders, the ones who are down and out, the broken, those who need mending. And he comes ready to bring hope to their lives. It's the same Jesus. Uh, and he's come to lead us into what it truly means to be human, which is why he's very quick to expose the fragility of our own little kingdoms and invites us to form a new group of people, a new community with those who are willing to come to their senses and lay down their own kingdom and follow him as the one true king. And it's a radical, radical call. It's a call to leave your own way of doing things because the kingdom of heaven is here. So Jesus says, stop living your way and follow me. And as you do that, the promise is you will find life. And I'm aware all of this, it sounds pretty intense, doesn't it? Like submit to the king. But the fact is Jesus going around speaking and behaving like he owns the place. This is actually the very best news your eye could ever imagine. Now, I don't know where you're on in your own personal journey. Some of us are already at that place where we're going, look, I totally tried defining good and evil for myself and not paying attention to Jesus at all. And here's where it got me. We've already woken up to that. We've embarked on this journey with Jesus where we're discovering what it's like to live under his reign with him as our king. But there might be others who aren't quite there yet. Uh, and what you're going to be hearing over the next few weeks is really going to mess with your head because one moment you're going to absolutely love the social justice and serving the poor Jesus and the next you're going to hate the forgive your enemies and give away your money and be sexually pure Jesus. But you can't pick and choose which bits you want to follow. It really doesn't work like that. Jesus comes walking along and he sees us in the context of our lives and he simply asks us to follow him all in. And it's this haunting, haunting revelation of who we are and our desperate need for him, combined with this stunning realisation of who Jesus is and how staggeringly good it is to follow him. So here's where I want to land this. Right now, in this moment, today, you and I of being given the same opportunity to respond to the call of Jesus and live under his reign as those four fishermen by the Sea of Galilee all those years ago. Similar to us right now, they were facing pretty uncertain times. And what was good news for them is every bit as good news for us today. But just like them, there is a response we need to make if we're to experience this as good news. Listen, the reason why these stories are in the Bible in the first place is so they can confront us in the midst of the craziness and the confusion of our lives right now and bring us to the place of decision. How am I going to respond to this invitation? For some of us, it is going to mean huge life change. For others, it is going to mean much smaller tweaks. For many of us, it's going to lead to some fairly deep work on our motivations and why we make the decisions we make and why we are the people we are. And Jesus forces us to wade through all of that stuff 
to face it up and come to terms with who he is. But it all starts from a position of trust. There are going to be things you like, a lot of things about what Jesus says and teaches and asks you to do that, in all honesty, you're not going to be quite so keen on. But the question is, through it all, are you willing to trust him? Uh, am I personally going to trust that his way is better than mine? That he's right about what it means to be a human being? At a time when none of us really has any idea what tomorrow holds, let alone next year or 10 years from now, the call is simply to trust Jesus today and discover for ourselves that he is good, he's faithful and he's wise. And then repeat tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. Whatever your life situation right now, won't you hear Jesus call to you and ask yourself, what does it mean for him to take back the world and to take back my life from myself so that I can be set free to become the kind of person that he's made possible through his life, his death and his resurrection.